You're listening to a podcast from Northeast Christian Church. For more information about Northeast, go to ncclex.org. Thanks for listening. Well, we said it last week, and we say it again this week. Go Big Blue. Did you watch the game? Yeah. Was that great or what? 5-0. and oh. Fantastic. So we were there, and, you know, the energy is crazy. It was sold out. We're still in the nosebleeds. Night game, so no sunburn. So it worked out well for us this round. We're there, and... You know, there were quite a few calls, right? Quite a few calls, and maybe they were bad calls in your mind, but we've got some people behind us, and they're just heckling the refs. I'm sure the refs couldn't hear them, but they're heckling them. And the greatest line on the way home, Michelle, Chris, and I, we were sharing our favorite line that we heard. In the fourth quarter, we got one of those calls, and a guy just yelled, No! Fake news! Is that great or what? I thought that was phenomenal. But I'm watching these refs, and, you know, they make a call, and you can tell it's on us. And then there's tens of thousands of fans frowning on this call. And the guy comes over, and he, I don't know, presses that little button. I don't know where it is. And he's talking. He's making all these hand motions. But everybody's booing and yelling, so we can't even hear what the guy's saying. But I was thinking about that ref and prep for this morning. So you got a guy there, and he's surrounded by tens of thousands of people. And they're just screaming at him. And they totally, adamantly, passionately disagree with what he's saying. There was a great article. I'll follow this blog called Church Leaders. Uh, Got some great stuff in it. But a guy was writing about U2. And I don't know much about U2. Not a huge fan. I know a couple of their songs. So I hope this doesn't get back to them. You know, I'm sure they follow us, right? So this guy's writing about U2. And he says their record sales are down. And they have been for some time. And he traces it back to this transition they had where he thought at the beginning, U2 U2 was this band and they were edgy and they were who they were unapologetically. This is what we're bringing to the music industry. And he said there was some kind of transition where they started catering to their fans. In other words, there was this idea that, wait, we're putting out some new music but are they going to like this? So the blog goes on, and he actually calls out pastors and says, hey, this is great for pastors because when you start playing into that, what happens? For example, I'm up here, and what is this thought going on in my mind? I'm looking out at you all, and is there that thought, I hope they like this. I hope they like me. I hope I do a good job. So I'm thinking about this ref having to say this stuff. And he knows that people are going to just yell at him and scream at him and boo. And I hope you don't do that, right? You're not about to throw anything. No tomatoes in the house. And that's where Paul is too. See, they've been teaching about this thing that we looked at last week, the gospel. And they're merging into this transition, if you will, where the message isn't about land or law It's not about heritage or blood. It's not about lineage. It's about one guy. It's not about a nation of people. It's about one guy named Jesus who died on a cross for the sins of the world. And even though he was buried, he was raised again. And you and I can get in on that. And that's the impetus for eternal life for you and I. 
And that's the message. So this blog goes on, and the guy's finishing up with you two, and he says, basically it boils down to this. And he says, and he's got this quote from a guy who produces records, and he says, when a band puts out a record, what we want is a division in the audience. Don't hear me saying I want a division in the church, okay? We want a division in the audience. He says, the best art divides the audience. He says, if we put out a record and half the people absolutely love it, and half the people absolutely hate it, we know we've done our job well. And I think about that with Paul. The Galatians had accepted the gospel. They were like, okay, we want in on it. And then Paul gets word that they were actually still trying to live up to the law. And they were leaning away from this gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Paul comes in and says, wait a minute. And I guess if he was here today, he would push a little button and make a call, even though these churches may have been criticizing him, and he knows they're not going to like it. Or you could say, maybe it was a line in the sand, and he knew that some people wouldn't like this, but he says, time out. This is the gospel, and you can't turn from it. Actually, he says, if you're turning away from this, you're not turning to any other gospel. There's, there's only one, and that's you and I drawing a line in the sand too. And when it echoes outside of these four walls, that divides people. People don't like to hear that. There's only one gospel. There's only one character in the gospel. There's only one way to heaven. There's only one, one, one. That divides the audience. And that's what you and I are called to. That's what we're called to accept. Thus the series, Authentic Faith. So we move into the part of the story where Paul has been sharing his story like we looked at last week. And giving his testimony and saying, hey, this is why I am the way I am. This is why I passionately believe this. I had this experience. I've met Jesus. I was on my way to Damascus. I was persecuting the church. Here's some of the stuff that's been going on in my life. You know, I've got some deeds that I'm not proud of. I'm kind of the worst of sinners. But God changed my life. He said, I was always in competition. I had this competitive spirit. I judged myself against other people. God took care of that as well. And I'm all in with this gospel. And before we move on into chapter 2, I love the way Paul says, you can't change from a different, you can't change from the gospel to a different gospel. And the word he uses different implies quality. Quality. There's nothing better, if you will. This is it. Will there be challenges? Yeah. Trouble? Yeah. Hard times? Yeah. Will this solve every earthly problem that we experience? No. But there's no better quality than the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he moves into chapter 2, and what we have here is something fantastic. And I think this is one of those chapters, like if you're in your personal devotional time, if you're in your D group, this is one of those chapters that would be really easy to just read over. Kind of like um, the begats in the Old Testament. Or some of you have read through, uh, one of my buddies and I were talking, you read through Kings and you come up to Chronicles and it's like the same thing and you're reading through it again. This would be one of those chapters where it's easy to just read over. Or as you're reading it, you're also thinking about what you need on the grocery list. Or when you're going to binge watch your next show, right? That's what you're thinking about. That's what happens. So chapter 2 comes in and Paul's got a team around him. There's a few guys and they're wrecked by this gospel. They're fully bought into it. And they feel compelled to go and talk to the other people who aren't as fully bought in. There's some leaders, leaders in the Jewish field. So they're coming together 
and they're going to talk about this issue. And you and I may not realize it when we're reading through this, but it has great implications for how you are here this morning. Even implications for how you're dressed and how you're singing this morning. This is a pivotal moment in the life of the church. So we jump in in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, 14 years later, probably after his conversion, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time I took Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before, before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this. Hold on this screen for just a moment. I did this privately. Can I, can I weave in a tangent for just a moment? We've got this Wednesday night class on conflict going on. And if you're not a part of it, we're not having class this coming Wednesday because of fall break for Fayette County. But we're going to resume on October 10th. We'd love to have you there. There's about 30 or 40 of us who are just diving deep into this understanding of conflict, becoming aware of how we're involved in it and how we can resolve it. And it's great. One of the things we talked about this past week was this idea of privately. So we've got this meeting that's being set up. And there's conflict. Or there's tension. And I love how Paul notes that they wanted to have this privately. That's where we really want to raise the bar when it comes to how we allow faith to play out. Especially authentic faith. Some of you are probably in conflict right now. Maybe you have been. Maybe you've experienced this positively or negatively. But what I see happening sometimes is that there's tension or there's conflict between two people. And it's so easy to talk to everyone else except the other person that's immediately involved with you. I learned this lesson early on, and I think it helped shaped, uh, shape the next 15, 20 years of ministry. I was teaching a Bible study. It was on a Wednesday night. Had about 20 of us. Great group of people. I mean, salt of the earth, beautiful people. And we're talking. And I'd had a meeting earlier in the week about an individual who was wrestling with whether they should continue living or not. So I missed a regularly scheduled Monday evening meeting to be with this individual. So we're having this Bible study Wednesday, and one lady hears that I, as her pastor, skipped out on this Monday meeting. And when she gets word of that, because I gave a little illustration there in the teaching, she stops the teaching and rips into me in front of everyone. It doesn't matter to her that I was with this guy who was wrestling with whether he should continue to live. What was most important to her were two things. One, that I didn't attend the Monday meeting. And number two, that she lets everyone in the group know of her displeasure. So I think, what am I going to do? I felt embarrassed and I felt very upset in that moment. So I looked at class and I said, well, excuse me for just a moment. And I stepped out, gave my composure. I came back and I kept teaching. Uh, the next day, I looked up her phone number, and I called her. But I remember before I actually pressed, you know, her numbers, the digits there, had the phone up here, and I was wrestling with whether I was going to call or not. And I was thinking, what's this going to turn into? Should I? Am I making a mountain out of a molehill? I mean, it would be easier for me just to go on. But then I couldn't get past the fact that she had done that publicly. And I thought, what kind of example is this setting? And then I realized, me, here I am as the pastor, I have a great opportunity 
to set the example. So remember Matthew 5, where Jesus says, and this is what we talked about this past Wednesday, if you're bringing worship to God, uh, you're bringing your worship to Him, and you're there at the altar and you're about to offer your gift, and you remember, wait a minute, somebody has something against me, stop, don't worship, don't offer your gift. Go and try to be reconciled. Go and try to make things right. Then come and offer your gift. So I went ahead and called. She answered, and I said, hey, how are you today? She said, great. And I'm like, you know, all the formalities. And then I'm like, so uh, based on what happened last night, I assume that you have some issue with my schedule. So Jesus said to do this, and here I am. Can we set up a time to work through this? And we experience something that a lot of people miss out on. We experience the benefit of the health and the harmony that flows out of working through conflict. A lot of people don't experience that. Conflict or tension comes your way, and it's so easy to disregard it until it happens again, then it builds up, or to talk to other people. But if you can adopt this example of privately going to the person, chatting with them, and then making decisions on how you move forward. It's one of the most beautiful things. So I love how that example's in there. So we're going to the next slide. Yet not even Titus, and here's where this gets really relevant for you and I. Not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. For Jews, a badge of your spiritual identity was every male on the eighth day they would be circumcised. So they're at this meeting, and Barnabas and Paul and Titus, they've accepted this gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And Titus is a Greek, and he says, I don't feel compelled to get circumcised. Do you see what's happening? For centuries, there was this mosaic law. There was this way of life that said, every Jew, you're circumcised. And if a Gentile wants to become part of this movement of God in the Old Testament people, if any Gentile wants to become a part, all you have to do is allow them to accept the law and live that out, including circumcision. And then they're enfolded into the people of God. But after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, there's this meeting, and Titus says, I don't think that's necessary. As I was preparing for this, one of the oddest things happened. It was great, and it was just affirmation that we're on the right page, we're on the right path talking about some of this. Some of this stuff doesn't get shared from the stage. And if you're not connected with a smaller group Bible study or mid-sized group Bible study where we talk about some of these things, it's hit or miss whether you hear some of this or not. But I get a call from one of my friends, and he says, hey, I was just wondering, and I was really prepping about this transition from the law into the new covenant and all that jazz. And he said, so I'm with uh, some family here, and they want to know why we don't worship on Saturdays anymore, why we're here on Sunday mornings. So as a pastor, I just put the question uh, in front of you. Could you answer that? Have you worked through that? Because I could imagine that Titus didn't feel compelled to observe the Sabbath as well. And I would imagine that Titus didn't feel compelled to adopt the dietary code either. It's interesting what's happening here. Before I tell you what I told the guy on the phone, they accept Titus. 
the Jewish people that are meeting with these guys, they accept him. And this demonstrates a new direction, if you will, a direction where it's not just about your outward appearance. There's something else occurring. It's not just about what you're doing from like the Old Testament law and how that meets you. Maybe we could say it like this. Instead of salvation, the law being a system of salvation where we have to earn it, we have to do this, 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 and this to, for God to bring us into his family, it's reversed. So performance isn't prior to salvation. It flows from it. Now God saves us. He meets us right where we are. He transforms and changes us. And as a result of that, and maybe some of you know this verse, we're not compelled to be circumcised, but the love of Christ for us compels us to live a certain way. The love of Christ compels us to follow him. We're not earning anything. We're living in gratitude for what he has done for us. So, so I answered the question and I said, hey, this is the model that we see picking up in the New Testament. The Old Testament had this way of life and then Jesus came and he fulfilled it. He didn't do away with it. He didn't abolish it. He didn't say it's meaningless in that sense where it should have never existed. He said it had a purpose and now I'm fulfilling it. So what do we see happening? What day was Jesus raised? First day of the week. When the church came together, they came together on the first day of the week. When they celebrated the Lord's Supper or communion, they did so on the first day of the week. And that's why we're here. And I bet none of you feel compelled to be here on a Saturday evening. But I bet you would feel compelled to be here on a Sunday morning. We've had this transition. So he goes on. Notice how the story unfolds. So this matter, this matter actually arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. Several years ago, I was at this store, K. I didn't go to Jared. I went to K, you know, K Jewelers. So I was there looking for a ring for Michelle, um, just touring around looking what was in my particular budget. And this lady comes over and intercepts me. She's one of the salespeople there. And we start talking. And she's doing a great job, you know, filling me out and all that stuff and really going to make a push for this one particular ring. And we're talking. And I forget how the conversation evolved to this, but she discovers that I'm a pastor and she starts talking about church. So I'm like, you know, are you really connected or is this part of your sales pitch and all that stuff? But we worked through some stuff. And here's where I really believe she was connected. But here was the interesting thing. She told me about her prayer life. I'd, I'd love to know about your prayer life. I love to learn about people's prayer lives so I can implement some characteristics or qualities from your life that are important and helpful to you. And maybe I can adopt some of those that would be important and helpful for me as well. But when this lady told me, I was like, wow, I bet she skipped over Galatians chapter 2. She told me that she has a hard time connecting with God in prayer because this is her ritual. And she read about this from the Old Testament. She said when she goes to pray, she'll go home and she will shower and she'll put on perfume and she'll put on a, one of her best sets of clothing. I kid you not, I'm not making this up. And then she'll go into one particular room and she'll pray. And she says, I'm bringing my very best to God in those moments. Do you see how she's trying to earn something? She's bringing her best, but kind of 
fooling herself or getting in the way. Or may I push it a little farther and say, she's bringing God something he never asked for. He didn't ask her to do this. But she's living in this law-based mind. That's why these guys use the word freedom. Freedom. Now, the important detail for me was I asked her where she adopted that. She said, well, I read about it, and my pastor told me I should. What if I told you there's this thing I've been doing with my prayers and heard some guy do this long ago, so it's not original with me. But if I'm on my knees and I'm praying, open hands, empty hands, right? Uh, God, fill them. I have nothing to bring to you. So I take three deep breaths. Three times. And every time I breathe in and breathe out, I say I'm breathing you in and I'm breathing me out. Now, what if I told you that that's what you need to do? And if you really want God to hear your prayers, that's what you need to do. How many of you would do that? Well, some of you would because your pastor's telling you. Some of you wouldn't because you're convinced of something else. But the point is this. If I tried to get you to do something that God has never asked for, we're rubbing up against the law. The gospel is to set us free, if you will. And you're saying free from what? So we've got these stairs, and when we moved into the house, the stairs are wood, and there's no carpet on them or anything like that, and they're really slippery. So I made a rule, especially for Isabella, no socks on the stairs. It's just you're not allowed. No socks on the stairs. Keep them in your drawer upstairs, um, in your chest, but when you bring them down, don't put them on in your room, and then wear them down. It's too slippery. Bring them downstairs, slip them on. I think that's fair enough, right? And it's a, it's a law. It's a rule in our house. That's what you do. So the other day... I guess about two or three weeks ago, Sophie is going down the stairs and Bella is following. Sophie's doing this thing where she's hopping down each stair. And I asked Sophie not to do that because Bella's behind her. If she'd been by herself, maybe, but I want Bella to be a little bit more stable going down those stairs. So Bella's watching her and then Bella starts to hop like that too. And I said, Bella, I'd prefer if you didn't do that. We're still getting acclimated to this. I want you to have a good handle on things. And I look down and she has socks on. So Sophie takes one more leap like that and then stops and then walks down the stairs. We're halfway down, so there's about six stairs left. Bella ignores me. This was disobedience. She heard me and she takes one more hop and she loses her balance. She falls forward. One of the scariest moments I'd ever seen in my life. She falls forward. She flips twice. And all through my mind, I'm just fast forwarding. Okay, how many bumps on the head was that? Is there a cracked rib? This is awful. It was horrible to view that. She's flipping over. Like mid-second flip, I can see her face. Utter shock. She's scared to death. So she lands down there at the landing. And I zoom down. And I pick her up, and I ask her if she's okay, and she is about to lose it, you know, as she would, about to ball. But it was more than pain. Something else was going on. It was almost like she was disappointed in herself or guilty or she felt embarrassed. Or maybe she realized that I was right in that moment, something like that. So I whisk her into the living room. We sit on the couch. I'm chatting with her, asking her if she feels any pain here or there or the other thing. Five minutes later, she's fine. She walks away, 
nothing, nothing. So I praise God in prayer for like 10 minutes. Just thank you that that didn't turn out tragically, right? But here's the point of the story. She broke the law. She disobeyed me. There was nothing in that moment that she could do to make amends for that. It happened. And if there were any consequences, they would have to play out. She was guilty. She overstepped the boundaries. And you and I have done that. I was the only one who could make the relationship right, if you will. I had to take the initiative to do that. If she had walked up and down the stairs 20,000 more times and never disobeyed me again, that happened. She overstepped the boundary. I would have to do something to allow the relationship to be right again. That's what Paul's talking about when he writes in Romans. He says, no one's going to be declared righteous. And when you read, read that word righteous in the New Testament, the word actually means to be put in a right relationship with God. To be put in a right relationship with God. He takes the initiative. He does it. He's the only one that can. So no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law, even if you're compelled to be circumcised. Through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Go on. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus. Justified. You've heard me talk about this before. One more pitch for this word. I hear it a lot of times. I've actually read it a few times too. Justified. We'll say, you and I are justified. We're put in a right relationship with God. We're justified by his grace. And that means we're treated just as if I'd never sinned. You've heard that before, right? Justified. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's not the case. Jesus would not have had to have died if God could just treat us like we had never sinned. This word justified means just as if I had paid the penalty for my sin. But I can't. I can't bridge that gap. So God takes it upon himself to pay the penalty for our sins, to justify us, to make things right in the relationship through our faith in that gift of grace. That's what that wraps up to. So we do have this freedom. We have this freedom to move. We're not bound to any certain thing. And faith doesn't earn God's grace. Faith allows us to live it out in gratitude of his grace. So we go on in chapter 2. He writes this. As for those who seem to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. Appearance. Those men added nothing to my message. Paul was accused of preaching an inadequate gospel. And it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, we're taught that if something sounds too good to be true, then it typically is. So isn't it just natural that you and I would try to add to this message and add to the gospel? There were actually three groups. You who like this stuff uh, know probably already have a Bible with some of the commentary at the bottom or in the back or something like that, and you research this stuff. But there were three groups that Paul was pushing back upon, and we'll call them just for the sake of time and language. We'll call them all, some, and none. 
And the all group, A-L-L, the all group said, hey, if you want to be a Christian, then you've got to become a Jew first. You can't just go straight to Jesus. You need to be circumcised. You need to adopt some of these mosaic, uh, the mosaic law, you need to adopt some of those principles and practices. And then we can talk about you becoming a Christian. And then the some group said, well, it's not really that heavy. I mean, there's some things you don't have to do, like you don't have to do the whole sacrificial thing because we do believe Jesus is the last ultimate sacrifice, but we do still want you to get circumcised. The some, picking and choosing. And then the none group says, actually, none of it matters. I mean, this body is physical matter. It doesn't really count for anything. God's spirit, he gives you of his spirit. You've got a soul in you. So it really doesn't matter how you treat your body. Do whatever you want to with it. Paul says, none of those work. The gospel is pure. And that's what you accept. So you can see how those three groups come around him and said, no, 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 that's too good to be true. That's not going to work for us. So when I think about you and I think about me and I think about our backgrounds and things we've observed and where the purity of our faith lies, because this, this series is called Authentic Faith, have we added to it in any way? And maybe are you adding to it even this morning, and that's causing some of the distress or some of the tension or some of the conflict in your own heart and mind when it comes to God. A.W. Tozer, he wrote and said, your view of God is the absolute most important thing about you. I remember being connected with a church and a guy was wearing this beautiful, beautiful three-piece suit. Uh, we had a stage in history where people dropped the vests for a while, but they're back. Beautiful three-piece suit. And when it was a Sunday morning, kind of like this, and at this particular church, we had a Sunday evening service as well. And what really caught my attention with the message that we're looking at from Galatians 2 was what happened with this guy. I overheard a conversation that he was in with another individual. And this guy asked him why he wore these suits. And I'm not criticizing suits. If it was more of our culture here, I would wear a suit. I love suits. Love ties too. Bow ties. Now, I know that's not the manliest thing, but bow ties are classy now. They're classy. So this guy asked him why he wore a three-piece suit. And he said, out of respect for God. So quick. Just answered it like that. I dress up like this out of respect for God. Well, good. Good. Later that evening, he came back to the Sunday evening service. Same building. Nearly the same group of people. It was summer. He had on khaki shorts. And he had on one of those Bermuda shirts. You know what I'm talking about? where it's buttoned down right here or something like that, short sleeve. Just out of curiosity, when do you get to choose that you're going to respect God when you're not? And when the suit and when the shorts play into that? Your view about God is the most important thing about you. And sometimes we've, we've grown up in environments that have led us to believe certain things. Or we've seen people doing certain things and they claim Christ just like we do. And what happens is that the purity of the gospel becomes impure. It seems inadequate. So we have to add to it. What I want us to do as we close this service is just spend a few moments in reflection. 
We're going to throw a few verses up on the screen. We're going to quote them. Just say maybe a line or two about them. And then we'll ask God to bless that in our lives. I've got another group that I'm working with, and it's just a beautiful group of people. And we're talking about this idea of family. You know, in Genesis 1, when there was Adam just walking around, and God looked and said, hey, it's not good for you to be alone. Remember what he created? Eve. But he didn't create a group. He didn't create a friendship. He created a family. Eve was, his, Eve was his wife. And I know, I know there's a lot of you. I hear the stories. I talk with you. And I just get these impressions that for you, family, with your kids, it's the safest place you'll ever live. That's how you're creating your home. Safest place you'll ever live. And when you think about your home life, think about you and me now as adults. Think about running around as kids or teenagers. Maybe faith was a part of our childhood. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe church was. Maybe it wasn't. And what that brought into our understanding of authentic faith, what we saw, observed, what we heard, what was pushed on us, or what was just led us to figure out for ourselves, what's shaped us from our childhood. God comes along and says, my, your faith, authentic faith, my relationship with you, that's the safest place you'll ever live. And it's all rooted in the gospel of Jesus. I think of Ephesians 2.8. And I think about some families, and in the childhood, and maybe it was for the children, sometimes it's the wife, sometimes it's the husband. But there's this idea that you have to earn something. Earn something. The kids just can't make mom and dad happy, so they're reworking their lives and their little minds and hearts the best way they can, and they're trying to earn mom and dad's love. And I see it from the wives and the husbands, too. There's some kind of insufficiency or insecurity there, and they want to earn something. And if that's how you grew up or if that's the dominant feel of your family or has been, you're going to bring that into your understanding or your view of God. And you're going to put yourself in a position where you're constantly trying to earn something. But Ephesians 2.8 says, no, 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 no. You're saved by grace through your faith. Not what you're wearing, not how you look. You can't earn this. Anybody trying to earn something this morning? We can continue this conversation after the message. Some of you know that those external appearances that Paul says, God doesn't use those to judge people. But the way you were brought up, maybe the way I was brought up, what we saw from church, that's not true. So you look at someone and based on how they look, that lets you know whether you should judge them or not. And maybe you've been on the receiving end of that. And you've been judged based on the way you look. So Romans 15, 7, it's, it's really challenging for you. You want to believe that God has accepted you just as you are. But when it comes to you accepting other people like that, that's tough. But that's what he did for us. 
just as we are when his grace met our faith. He accepted us and he saved us. And then some of you, any chance I get to drive this verse home, I do. Because I meet some people and they're constantly worried about their faith and their salvation. And if something sinful is occurring in your life, we need to talk. But if you are giving this the best you can because the gospel has really grabbed a hold of you like it did Paul, then I want you to know 1 John says, hey, God reminded us again, my relationship with you is the safest place you'll ever live. So you don't have to fear this idea of judgment day. When I meet you and see you face to face, if you're living like my son Jesus, out of a gratitude, his love has compelled you. There's no fear. My perfect love, it drives that fear out. And you can be confident on the day of judgment. But if that's not you, if faith is something scary because God is this guy who is just waiting to see you and sends you somewhere that you don't want to be, we need to talk and work through that as well. What we want to do here is really create authentic faith. And if you're wrestling with any of that, our prayer is simply this, God, we want to meet you where you are meeting us. And that's right here, right now. I encourage you, let's continue the conversation.